0: morning. Indeed, how worthy our God is to be crowned. Um, Before I pray, uh, I didn't send a letter to the church, just to uh, my co-workers, but uh, I do want to interact just a moment with the tragedy that happened in Texas. We can't even think of such things in our own lives. It's just beyond our worst nightmare, I have a friend that uh, pastors very close to there and he was on site uh, soon after the tragedy and was there until three in the morning and then uh, each day thereafter. So I've gotten a steady stream of emails uh, describing just how horrific this truly is. And we're going to pray for that church, that community in just a moment I do want you to know that at all three campuses, we have for quite some time had a security team. Uh, They have um, a fair amount of training and regularly get together. Uh, A lot of former and present military and police, as well as others, are part of it. All three campuses are very heavily cameraed. Whether you're aware of that or not, you're on candid camera here. Uh, And the security team and ushers are connected via walkie-talkies. So we have done and continue to do the best we can uh, to secure and to make sure that no part of Highland is a soft target. We are absolutely not a soft target. Let's go ahead and uh, spend a moment to pray for this church. Father God, uh, we just can't even imagine the pain and tragedy that this church, this community, multiple families have experienced. Father, we ask that You would just bring peace in the midst of horror. Lord, we know that the ultimate answer is salvation for individuals, a nation, a world that desperately needs Jesus. Father, we pray that individuals who would want to perpetrate such evil... Will be stopped in their tracks. And for these victims and their families, several of which are still struggling for life in the hospital, we ask for grace upon grace that you would be ever near and dear to them and that you would heal what is, from our estimation, beyond healing. Father, uh, protect innocence all across the globe, we ask. And Father, as we turn to your word, and we read, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We're so thankful for your mercy, undeserved grace, that you extend to us. Father, help us to mine the fifth beatitude well, to be encouraged and challenged by it. Grow us, transform us. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Before you and I get to the fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I think it would be helpful for us to take a little drive down memory lane and look at the first four Beatitudes and then move on to the fifth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we read that poor in spirit and we think, oh, I knew it. Christians are like lemons. They're sour. They're dour. They're just whiners and complainers. Yet that has nothing to do with poor in spirit. In fact, the Bible tells us that we ought to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We ought to be the most joyful people. And yet we're poor in spirit in our understanding that on our own we are separated from a holy God. Poor in spirit talks about humility before God because we understand that we are sinners in utter need of God's grace, his transformation, his salvation through faith in Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. We live in a world that rejoices over sin, plays with sin, is not only tempted by by revels in sin, but we are told to mourn over our sin, to be remorseful over sin, to ask God to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's the second beatitude. Blessed are those who meek, for they shall inherit the earth, that is the new heaven and the new earth. And we read the word meek and we think weak, I want no part in it. But the only relationship meek has with weak is that they rhyme together. Meek is actually strength under control. Meek is somebody who is self-controlled, or more accurately, God-controlled, spirit-controlled. Meek is understanding who we are in relation to who God is, and we daily come to God and ask Him to empower us to turn from sin and towards righteousness. That's a meek individual. And that's the one that inherits the new heaven the new earth. The fourth is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. And we read that and we read the word righteousness and we think, Oh, how Gregorian, how Victorian, how cathedral-like, a little musty. Who wants to be righteous? And yet we fail to realize that the temptations of the world are fleeting. The pleasures of the world are only pleasures for a moment. But the satisfaction that God offers as we walk empowered by His Spirit is not only temporal but eternal salvation and satisfaction. And so when we hunger and thirst for the things that God desires, we are satisfied now and we are satisfied eternally. And then the fifth beatitude, where we are today, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As I think of merciful, I think there are two poles we need to avoid. The first pole is, is being soft on sin, winking at sin, not being attentive to sin. We want to avoid that. That's not merciful. That's sinful. The other pole, however, is to become legalistic, to be angry, to be holier than thou, to look down on others. We need to avoid both poles. Merciful is gracious, to those who are innocent or those who are repentant. And as we receive mercy from God, so we are to be peddlers of mercy towards others. We ought to be the most merciful people on the face of the earth if we know Christ, because how much mercy has he extended to us? As I think of blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, I I think of two illustrations. I want to share them both. The first is of a man named Joe, not his real name. Joe never attended a church that I pastored. I didn't know Joe, I knew of Joe. Joe was well respected in the community where I lived. Joe was a leader in the church that he attended. He taught Sunday school, he sang in the choir. And he was a leader on their governing board. From all outward appearances, Joe seemed to live well for the Lord. He seemed to desire to serve the Lord. But I remember the day well when Joe's girlfriend, he was a single guy, she came to see me. She didn't attend the church where I pastored either. She came to me and she said, uh, I'm really hurting. Joe and I have been immoral for quite some time, and I finally said no. And Joe grabbed my wrist, he forced me to the ground. He threatened me. And he told me if I told anyone about this, he would come after me. Well, immediately I wanted to call the police. I encouraged her to go down to the police station with me or to have the police come, but she would have none of it no matter how I begged. She did agree that she would break up with Joe and and never go back, a promise she kept. She then allowed me to uh, go and confront Joe on my own. Again, I didn't know Joe, I knew of Joe. And I went in and shared what I had heard and he didn't exactly deny it, But he wanted me to know that it was no big deal. He wanted me to know that he didn't need help, and I assured him he did. And I assured him if I had my way, we'd be down at the police station talking. But I didn't have my way in this, but he needed help. He needed to confess to God and confess to his victim. He needed help with a professional counselor in his life to handle anger and violence. I think he needed justice. He told me that I needed to mind my own business. That he had nothing to confess and there was no help that he needed. In fact, he yelled at me and threatened me and he told me that I was unloving and that I lacked mercy. I think he misunderstands mercy. Mercy. Is grace extended? Mercy is given to either innocents or those who are guilty, who confess and in the power of God's Spirit want to change direction. The only thing he was sad about was getting caught. He didn't need mercy, he needed more confrontation. He didn't need mercy, he needed justice. He didn't need mercy. He needed transformation. But he played the mercy card and said that I lacked mercy. The second illustration I'll give you also did not occur in the church that I pastored, but is also a true story. It's a woman who was the church treasurer, and she began to embezzle funds. Frankly, she was good at it. My understanding is she probably never would have been caught. She had covered her tracks well, but God began to work on her spirit and she came to the leaders of the church. She confessed what she had done. She had already made out a check for one and a half times the amount that she had embezzled to pay back. She confessed and asked for forgiveness. The church chose to prosecute, and she eventually did some time. During the time that she was in prison, no one in the church ever contacted her, not at all. When she had paid her debt to society, she went back to the church. That first Sunday from the pulpit, the pastor humiliated her, And said essentially, we're not soft on sin here. You did the crime, now you're going to do the time. You're never to step foot in this church again. I don't know what you think about that. But I'm broken over it. I'm disturbed by it. I think the pastor and the church are very wrong. Here's a woman who is broken by her sin. She doesn't get caught, but she confesses. She pays one and a half times restitution. She pays a debt to society. She's not asking to be treasurer again and and shouldn't be. She shouldn't be placed in a position of temptation. She's just asking to come to worship. And instead, she faces retribution, a lifetime sentence. The Bible says, "Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy goes to the innocent. Mercy goes to the one who confesses, and the power of God's spirit desires to turn from sin and towards righteousness. And to the degree of which you and I have received mercy, to that degree we are to extend mercy. Remember the two poles: We were never to be soft on sin or wimpy towards sin. But we're neither to be legalistic and arrogant and hate filled and angry towards sinners. The fifth beatitude is so necessary in society today. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As I think about the fifth beatitude, my mind goes to John 8. I want to read John 8, verses 2 to 11. I'm aware that you have a little note that says the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses. Actually, one early manuscript, D, does. And it's in many other manuscripts. And many in the early church considered these to be authentic words. We will as well. Let me read verses 2 to 11. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple All the people came to him, that is Jesus, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. As you and I begin in this text, we find Jesus where we often find him. He's teaching the people about God and about God's word. You think up north when he's in the Galilee. It says he went from synagogue to synagogue. He was in Capernaum for 18 months, but he preached in all the synagogues because Jesus believes that corporate worship is necessary in my life and in yours. And he goes down south and he preaches in the temple. We live in a day and age where people say it may not be important to corporately worship. Jesus thought otherwise, And he regularly taught. And while Jesus is teaching, the scribes and the Pharisees bring a woman caught in the act of adultery before Jesus. They disrupt Jesus while he's teaching. Now let's be clear about this. The scribes are experts in the law. They're experts in the law of Moses. They're experts in the oral traditions, the man-made laws. If you have a text and you're not sure where it is, and you can say two or three verses, they'll be able to finish it. They'll be able to give you book, chapter, and verse. They're experts in the law. The Pharisees are lay leaders. They have a lot of authority. They have a lot of respect. They have a a lot of influence over the people. The last thing you and I want are scribes and Pharisees in our business. When scribes and Pharisees are in our business, it's not going to go well. We don't want to be in the sights of scribes and Pharisees. This poor woman is in the sights, but it's not because of her immorality. It's not because of adultery. Verse 6 is clear. They do all of this to test Jesus, to, to find something wrong with Jesus, that they might bring a charge against Jesus. This is a sting operation the first thing I want to know with a sting operation is where's her paramour where's the guy how come she's here and he walks how come she's the tramp and he's the player how come she's gonna face the music and he's not where is he in all of this In their culture, he's certainly more culpable than she is. The second thing I want to notice is that this is a young girl. This is not a mature woman. How do we know this? We know it based on the text that is cited by the scribes. They're experts in the law. If she were a mature woman, they would have gone to Leviticus 20... Instead, they went to Deuteronomy 22. They're talking about a young girl who is probably engaged. She's probably 13 years old. They have not yet tied the knot, and she has been intimate with her fiancé. That's what's going on. So we're not talking about a mature woman. We're talking about... A gal who's barely on the cusp of womanhood. And she's dragged before Jesus. And they say, Moses says we can stone her to death. What saith you? Now understand again, verse 6, it's a test. It's a sting operation. The idea is to trip Jesus up. There are at least three things that will cause Jesus problems. The first is that she's young. Shouldn't we give her another chance? To stone her to death doesn't seem terribly merciful. And So if Jesus says stone her, in fact, I'm going to toss the first stone, some are going to say he lacks mercy. The second thing I notice is that the command is to put her to death. This is going to run Jesus afoul of Rome. Israel is under Roman control, and the only one that can commit capital uh, offense, the only one that can take uh, a life, is Rome itself. And so, if Jesus says stone her, he's going to run afoul of the Roman authorities. There's a lack of mercy. To stone her. There's the law of Rome. To stone her. And then there's the whole misogynist piece. Where is the paramour? Where is the man? He's not there. So he gets to walk in. And she gets stoned to death. It kind of reminds me of the old westerns. You remember them don't you? They catch a cattle cattle or somebody who has stolen someone else's cattle and, and one of the cowboys say, let's give him a fair trial and then hang him. That's exactly what's going on, right? Moses says, stone her. What do you say, Jesus? The whole thing is a sting operation. It's to catch Jesus. It's to trip up Jesus. And I love what Jesus does. I, I'm going to practice this myself he kneels down and he begins to write. So the next time any of you ask me a question and I am totally clueless, I'm going to get down and I'm going to start doodling on the carpet until you just go away. But the problem is I don't know the answer. That's not the problem with Jesus. Jesus knows the answer, but this is a pregnant moment. He's really setting them up. Because they're about to find out that they're no match for Jesus. So he gets down and he begins to write. Wouldn't you love to know what Jesus wrote? I've always wanted to know and we're not told but we are given a small clue. The word used when it says Jesus wrote in the dirt is expected to be graphé, and That's the word to write. But that's not exactly the word in the text. The word in the text has graphene, but it has a prefix, kata, which means down or against. He wrote against. Is it possible that Jesus began writing down some of the sins in the crowd? Kata graphene. He either writes down or he writes against. I think the implication is he's getting a bit personal. He's writing some of the things that they're guilty of. Some of the things we might be guilty of. And then he stands up and he says, you know what? We're not going to disobey Moses but what we're going to do is the one among you who has not sinned, let him throw the first stone. And then he goes back to writing. Writing against. And the wise ones, the older ones, they start scattering first. And the the younger ones look around and think, what am I doing here? And they leave. And pretty soon Jesus stands up. He says, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus is not light on sin. Jesus does not ignore sin. Jesus is not just sweeping it under the rug. He's addressing it. But historically, the earlier church considered that she was at this point repentant. And so if indeed she is repentant, Jesus is going to extend mercy to her. I mean, she's already paid a pretty good penalty. Who among us wants our dirty laundry brought into the midst of a message where Jesus is preaching? I mean, she's paid a pretty steep price. And now, if indeed she's repentant, Jesus says, you've called me Lord, good. Go and sin no more. He extends mercy. And as Jesus models mercy, so you and I are to be merciful towards others. Notice that Jesus does not say, law one another. He says, love one another. There's a difference. Let me read from John 13, 34 and 5. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This fits so well with so many other passages that you and I read in scripture. I even think of Galatians 6, 1 and 2 where Paul answers the age-old question, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is yes. But we're our brother, our sister's keeper in a certain way, and that way is with mercy, that way is with grace, that way is with an eye towards restoration, not towards law. Listen to how Paul put it in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. He says, brothers... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That is, we don't ignore sin, we don't whitewash sin, we don't sweep sin under the rug, but we handle sin with mercy, not with legalism and hatred and anger. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Hebrews 10.24 says that we are to spur one another on in love and good deeds. Even when it comes to passages like church discipline, if it gets that far, like a Matthew 18.15-18 to 18, or 1 Corinthians 5, I still think of 2 Corinthians 2. Clearly referring to a church discipline situation. I believe 2 Corinthians 2 is referring back to 1 Corinthians 5. It may or may not be. But you remember what Paul says. The one who is disciplined has been disciplined enough. Bring him back into the fold. Lest you harden him against the Lord and drive him towards sin. There's a level of mercy. Even at the highest levels of sin, we want to extend mercy because the goal is to spur one another on in love and good deeds. The goal is to restore one another in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest ye too fall into sin. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The two poles. We're not to be wishy-washy with sin, we're not to be. Ignoring sin, we're not to sweep sin under the rug. But we're not to be angry and legalistic and mean-spirited. We're not to law one another. We're to love one another and spur one another on. That may very well mean confronting sin. But when we see innocence or we see confession and we see repentance, we flood them. We are flooded by God with mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray. Father God, uh, help us to find the right balance, never ignoring sin, toying with sin, taking sin lightly, That we don't want to do, but also not being arrogant, mean-spirited, and haughty and holier than thou. Father, help us to be brothers and sisters in the Lord that truly do spur one another on in love and good deed, that recognize that we are our brother and sister's keeper, but not lawing one another to death, but loving one another to greater life. Allow this to be true in our lives, individually, as families, corporately, in our community. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.